Our scripture this morning is going to come from the book of Exodus. It's uh, chapter 32, verses 1 to 14, and then again from 30 to 35. When the people saw Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. Before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had and handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are, are, are your God, gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Then Aaron saw this. He built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented their fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink, and they got up to indulge in rivalry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupted. They have been quick and turned away from what I commanded them, and they have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it, and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, so that I may... Anger, that my anger may burn against them and I, that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you've brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say this was the evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe out them off the face of the earth. Turn from your fiery anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I'll give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Starting then in verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go and lead the people to the place I have spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sins. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did and the calf Aaron had made. you all. So imagine with me uh, for a minute attending a, a wedding ceremony for a couple. You watch as they publicly commit their lives to each other. They 
This is a joyful occasion. There's dancing, there's feasting. The couple talks about their future plans together. They show you pictures of the house that they've purchased and they will move in together soon. And imagine the next day you find out that this couple has filed for divorce. I think the only response would be, what on earth happened? When we left off last week, we were at Mount Sinai. Moses was up there in the presence of God. He was receiving this detailed and intricate plans of how God was going to move in with the Israelites. Okay, so we have God moving in with God's people. Uh, This was after the covenant had been ratified. God had laid out what life was going to look like with Yahweh. The the Israelites said, sign us up. We're in. And by the end of the passage today, this is what the scene looks like. The tablets of the law that, that were inscribed on stone, they lie shattered at the base of the mountain. The Israelites are in complete despair. 3,000 of them lie dead. The rest have been struck with a plague. Moses is asking God to just blot them off the face of the earth, just, just be done with them. And God is beside himself utterly heartbroken. Okay, I think if we weren't so familiar with this story, we would find ourselves in absolute shock right now at the devastation that we see. Okay, we, we know this story, so it's lost. It's said, but this is a shocking turn of events. You do not see this coming as you go through the Exodus story. Okay, in the space of one chapter, we've gone again from God laying out his plan, how he will dwell with his people, and now the future of Israel hangs by the barest of threads. It's not clear at this point. When, there's, when our story for today ends, it's not clear what's going to happen going forward. The, the camera, again, we were last week up on the mountain. Think about the camera shifting down to Mount Sinai, where this whole time the Israelites have been, and they're getting a little impatient. They come to Aaron, and they say this, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. The Aaron then takes, tells them to take the gold, take the gold earrings, bring them to him so that they can craft a golden calf. So in your mind, in my mind, all kinds of alarm bells should be going off right now. Personally, I feel really, I feel for Moses. You, you lead a nation of people out of slavery. Okay? You've gone for a couple weeks, and then you become this fellow. Not only that, but as someone who's gone up and spent time in the mountains by myself, I'm a slightly offended at the treatment of Moses here because when you go up into the mountains and you go missing, the proper response is you send a search and rescue team to find them. That's what, that's what you do in the mountains, okay? But that's not what the Israelites do. This contact they have between themselves and God has gone missing, and they start to feel jumpy. They start to feel anxious. They're nervous. And the second alarming thing we see in this passage is they start to collect this gold to make this golden calf. Well, if we remember from last week, God is up on the mountain instructing Moses to collect gold, but not for a golden calf, right? The gold is for the tabernacle. But most alarming of all is this is a clear breaking of the second commandment when the Israelites are told they are not to bow down before idols. Okay, this again, this happens all after they had just said, hey, we're in. Everything you said, we're in. Sign us up. As one person put it, what is happening here is somewhat akin to adultery on one's wedding night. 
right? It just brings home, like, this is shocking what is happening. But what what exactly is happening here? I don't think it's as straightforward as it seems when you first read the passage. We know for sure what's happening is really, really bad, okay? God's upset. We know this is bad. But what's harder to figure out is what is actually happening? What are they trying to do? Okay, they're building a golden calf. We know that. They also start to begin to give credit to this calf to, to have led them out of Egypt. But it's, what's harder to figure out is does this, golden calf, does this golden calf represent Yahweh? Or is this some kind of completely different God? Okay, so like when you first read the passage, it sounds like it's a completely different God. It sounds like they're saying, uh, we know, we used to know Yahweh, but we're done with Yahweh, and now we want to follow this other God or gods. Okay, we're done with Yahweh. But then you have right after they cast the idol, uh, Aaron builds this altar before the calf and says, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Okay, Lord here, all in caps. We should know what that is by now. That's Yahweh. So Aaron's saying there's going to be a festival for Yahweh, for the Lord. So what's going on here? Is this golden calf a replacement for Yahweh, or is this golden calf actually represent Yahweh? And what, you know, I read a number of scholars on this, listened to some people. What most people think is happening is that it's not that the golden calf is a replacement for Yahweh, but rather it represents Yahweh. So so think about it this way. It's not so much that the Israelites are rejecting Yahweh as their God as they are refashioning Yahweh. They're taking this God from heaven, this God they they saw up on the mountain, and they're, they're, they're making a representation of that God in the form of a golden calf. And this golden calf now gives them this concrete link between them and God. In many ways, this golden calf acts as Moses was. He was this point of connection between them and God. This golden calf is what the tabernacle was supposed to be. Because in some sense, this golden calf has the presence of God in it. It's this very concrete link between the Israelites and God. But why? You know, why? Why are they doing this? Why the golden calf? Well, think about this. We've, we've been seeing these pictures of Yahweh up on the mountain. There's thunder, there's lightning, there's smoke. This is, a, this is a God that's hard to get your mind around. A golden calf is different. The Israelites know this kind of God. I mean, th- this is a very familiar type of God. They would have known this kind of God from Egypt. They know how to make this kind of God. I'm sure they've seen other people make this kind of God. They know how to handle this kind of God. They know how to keep this God happy. They know how to feed this God. They know how to throw parties for this God. This kind of God can be managed, okay? This kind of God fits within their categories. See, the Israelites, they want to keep following Yahweh. They just want to keep following Yahweh on their own terms. And what they end up with is a joke. I like the way that Psalm, we'll look at Psalm 106 a couple times, but this, you can put up the first slide, Ron. This is the first part I want to see. it. So again, this is many, many years later. The psalmist is reflecting on it. At Horeb, Mount Sinai, at Horeb, they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull, which eats grass. They took the glory of God, and they made an image. And what they ended up with was a bull that eats grass. Like, that's what idolatry does. Okay, what is idolatry? It's exchanging the glory of God for something that's a joke. For something that's a parody of the real God. See, when you, when idolatry is starting with something big, the creator of heaven and earth, and you start to work on that God. 
you start to refashion that God. It's like you take a tool like Aaron and you go to work crafting that God. Okay, you start with the creator of heaven and earth and you end with a bull that eats grass. And it's easy for you and I to think, man, I am glad this doesn't apply to us because I have never melt down gold and cast it into an idol at my house, right? But what about this? What about taking the God of the Bible taking the God we encounter in the Bible and trying to fashion that God into a God that makes sense to us, into a God that fits into our categories, into a God we're, we're a little more comfortable with. The question is not whether you and I have done this. It's like, how many times have we done this this week? We do this all the time. We do it all the time. See, there's this constant temptation that we face as followers of Jesus to take this God we encounter in the Bible, take the tool like Aaron did, and just start chipping away. Because we want to smooth out the edges that seem a little rough to us. We want to smooth out the hard teachings that maybe contradict some of the things that we believe, that we're not on board with. We want to banish the mystery of God. A mysterious God is too much. We want a God who can fit in a box. Because that God is comfortable. That God is predictable. We want a God who will be like that golden calf where if we want to enjoy revelry, that, that golden calf will just be like, this is great. See, the fashioning is actually supposed to work the other way as followers of Jesus. We actually, as, we, as you commit your life to Jesus, you hand Jesus the tool and you say, work on me. I'm the one that needs to get refashioned, not the other way around. But the temptation, and we all, we all experience this, is to flip that tool and say, I want to work on God. See, part of what we do when we commit to follow Jesus is we say, I don't actually fully understand everything that's entailed in being your disciple. I don't even understand fully you. I don't understand what requiring you, following you requires, but I trust you more than I trust myself. That's hard to do. I trust you, Jesus, more than I trust myself. That Think about the posture of someone who's cynical, arrogant, and skeptical, okay? Think about how that person maybe approaches things. Think about how that person approaches the Bible, and think about a child. Think about a child. A child is naturally trusting. They're curious. The child is open to mystery. They don't have to put everything into a neat box. A child doesn't think they have to have all the answers because they know they don't. And when, it, when, you, when it's something contradicts what a child believes, they don't get defensive. We, we're, 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 when we approach the God of the Bible, the posture we take is much more clo closer to a child than it is someone who's cynical and skeptical and wants to just chip away at that. And you know what you end up with? If you go the cynical way, if you go the skeptical way, if you chip away, you end up with a God who is a joke, who's a bull that eats grass. You approach God as God reveals God's self in the Bible, and you have a compelling God. Okay, this is all happening down at the base of the mountain. God sees what's happening. Camera switches back up to Mount Sinai where God and Moses are, and God delivers the bad news to Moses, and it is bad. God says to Moses, go down because your people, your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, have become corrupt. In other words, I am, I'm done with these people. Moses, these are your people now. They're not mine. I've seen these people, and they are stiff-necked. 
This is a, a farming, folks will appreciate a farming metaphor. It describes an animal, an ox or a donkey, that, that refuses to turn the neck, its neck in the direction the owner commands. Right? It's a stubborn, willful corruption. It's not just accidental corruption. It's stubborn, it's willful. God continues, now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Wow. In one shocking sentence, the biblical story from Genesis 12 until now, the story of God calling Abraham, telling him he's going to make him into a great nation, telling him that nation then will bless all nations, it looks like it's coming to an end. It looks like it's over. Okay, Israel is about to be wiped off the face of the earth. This is bad news for Israel. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Moses. Moses is never going to get a better offer than this. Because God's not just going to destroy Israel. God's going to start over with Moses. God's going to make him into a great nation. God's going to take that promise that he placed on Abraham, and it's going to get transferred over to Moses. That is no small offer. Think about today in the business world and politicians in whatever world, in the church world, think about what people will do to get power today. Think about what people today will do for fame and for attention to be an all-star YouTube star. It's, it's, it's amazing. Think about what people will do for a legacy. Think about what we'll do to just leave a little bit of a legacy on earth that people think we're great, that we'll be remembered to as great. This all tempts us, right? Maybe not each one of those things. We're all tempted by power and greatness and legacy. And in an instant, it's all dangled before Moses, and his response is not interested. Not interested. You call me to serve and lead these people? That's why I do. That's what I'll do. I think this is such a beautiful moment in the story of Moses. I think this gives us a glimpse of what power in the kingdom of God looks like. Power is rooted in humility and in the focusing on the interest of others. Because not only does Moses decline the invitation for a nation to be built around him, he goes to bat for the Israelites. He, go, he intercedes on their behalf. Lord, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with a great power and a mighty hand. I, I love this. I love what Moses is doing. Like, hold on here. My people? No, 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 no. These are your people. You got them out of Egypt, not me. Like, look at this guy, Moses. Like, what happened to the old Moses? Remember the old Moses who encountered this God on this same mountain the first time we saw him in the burning bush? This Moses did everything he could to get out of the commission. I don't want to do it. I don't have the skills to do it. They're not going to want me to do it. Please send someone else. Look at this guy, Moses. Same mountain, completely different Moses. This guy is now boldly interceding on the behalf of the Israelites. He's putting his, their interest above his own. He's standing in the breach. I love this. This is how the psalmist, again, same Psalm 106. We can put up the next slide. Describes how Moses is doing. They exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull which eats grass. They forgot the God who saved him, who had done great things in Egypt. So he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, listen to this line, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. Okay, Moses stands in the breach. 
Moses stands in the gap between Yahweh and the Israelites, and he goes to bat with them. He makes this last-second Hail Mary attempt to talk God down. And what happens? We read this. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Okay? Did you just hear that? God had decided God was going to destroy Israel. Moses steps into the breach, goes to bat for the Israelites, and God relents. God changes God's mind. And I think we, we hear that and we're like, wait a minute, is that supposed to happen? Is that supposed to happen that God changes God's mind? I don't know. That makes me slightly uncomfortable. Like surely God was pulling a pump fake right here, right here, right? Hey, Moses, look, I'm going to destroy all the people. No, I'm not really going to do that. I, that's not what the text says. If I'm going to kind of go off what the text says, that's not what the text says. It sure sounds like Moses and God have this debate on the mountain, and God says, I'm going to change my mind, which really messes with us, right? It really messes with the categories we have for God. Like, if, if I were to ask you or you would ask me, hey, let's describe God, we, we tend to do it in these ways. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is eternal. God is creator. God is all-unchangeable. All fine ways to describe God. No problem. But what about God gets really frustrated? God gets his heart broken by people who cheat on him. God gets debates into debates on a mountain with a guy and changes his mind. That's not typically the descriptors we reach for is it? You can put up the next slide. This is a good quote by Pete Enns. He writes, too often it seems to me, despite our biblical literacy, we think of how God ought to be rather than how he's actually revealed himself. That's really important. We think about how God ought to be more than how God actually revealed God's self in, in Scripture. Because what we, what we get here in Scripture is this really human portrayal of God. And that can be kind of disconcerting. Like all-powerful, all-knowing God, I, okay, I got that, I handle that, I've heard about that since I was a kid. A God who gets in a debate on a mountain and changes his mind, that makes me uncomfortable. You know, think about the closest thing uh, maybe you have to engaging with something that's omniscient, all-knowing. Uh, they are nowhere close to omniscient, but think about your interactions with Alexa or Siri. They know a lot they seem to know everything. <laughs> Alexa is like the perfect person to go to when you need to know who won the 1948 World Series. Who won the 1948 World Series? Oh, you poor Cleveland fans. <laughs> but Alexa, she doesn't seem to know the first thing about what it feels like to be betrayed and heartbroken by someone you love. You know who does? God does. Siri can take you on every back road in Columbiana County. Siri has no idea what it feels like to be completely exasperated. God does. Alexa and Siri, at least in my experience, are not open to debates. Like, they don't give you the facts and be like, hey, do you want to talk about this? No, but the God in the Bible revealed to us this God who is, is completely beyond imagining, is completely other we have no category for this God. It's not like us, and yet we recognize that God. That God looks like us at times. That God gets frustrated. That God experiences pain. That God has his heart broken. 
I, see, I struggle to know how to talk to an all-powerful, all-knowing God. It's hard for me to relate to that God. But I see this interaction between Moses and that God, and I say, I get that. Because that interaction, that looks to me a lot like prayer. So you think about it, we've got every week we get our, our congregation's weekly newsletter, we see the prayer requests, and what do we do? We, we pray for those people. We do what Moses is doing here on the mountain. We are interceding for them. We're standing in the breach for them. We're doing, we're doing that when we pray for our grandchildren. When we, when we have a job interview the next day and we're like, no, I, God, I need your help tomorrow. We're asking for something of God like Moses. And implicit in that request is that God's actually listening to us. And somehow, in some way, these requests are doing something. What happens if we look at this text and say, okay, Moses interceded, but God was just going to do what God was going to do anyway. Is that the case for prayer too? Think about it in Luke's gospel. Uh, Jesus' disciples ask Jesus, teach us to pray. Jesus teaches them the Lord's prayer, teaches them these petitions. Did Jesus then pull him aside and say, I just want to let you know, actually that doesn't do anything. <laughs> no, that, that would make no sense to us. Does that mean that every little request that we, we present to God is answered just like we hope? No. Okay. Does that mean we understand the mystery of how God's sovereignty and human intercession works? No. It's a mystery. It's a mystery to me. It's a mystery to you. But here's what I know, and here's what I see. God not only tolerates God's creation interceding, God invites it. He wants it. When you go to God in prayer, God's not annoyed like, I got other things to do than listen to you. God is like, this is what I want. God's not humoring us when we engage in prayer. God wants it. God invites it. Again, somehow, I don't understand how this works. But somehow, in the way God makes decisions, somehow that factors into the decision. I don't understand how that works. I don't, if I don't, though, when I pray, and, and I struggle with this sometimes, and I'm sure you do too. We often ask the question, does this make any difference? And I read this story and I'm like, man, I want to pray. I want to go to God. I want to I stand in the breach on behalf of you and others. And maybe even more than that, I realize, man, God wants to engage with me. There's different types of prayer. Okay? One is intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer can often feel a bit like this, where it's like a wrestling match with God or a debate with God. Intercessory prayer can sometimes be exhausting. When you are standing in the breach on behalf of someone else, it can feel very exhausting. It's a necessary type of prayer. But notice that, that Moses isn't the only one speaking. God is speaking. I encourage you, go to bat for people. Go to bat for our congregation. Intercede for others. Intercede for your kids and your grandkids and our community trusting that that prayer does something, but also want you to just listen to God because God doesn't just want a monologue. God wants a dialogue. Okay, the prayer of the life of a disciple is often moments of really intense standing in the breach moments. It's pleading on behalf like Moses is doing for the Israelites. It's excruciating. It's exhausting. I think about Jesus in Gethsemane asking God to take the cup from him. And there's other times that prayer is silence. Prayer is God speaking to you. Prayer is God filling you up at the beginning of the day because you know you're going to have a long day and you need God to pour God's self into you. And you just say, pour yourself into me. 
And you don't always have to be interceding. It's an absolutely critical part, but sometimes you just need God to fill you up, to love you. And God wants all of that. And what I would encourage you to do if you don't already have it, as a disciple of Jesus, if you are a disciple of Jesus, build that into your daily life. Build a rhythm of prayer into your daily life. Okay, that's what God wants, and it's going to be good for you. Okay, one final thing I want to say. How do we do this? How do we do these two things I've been talking? How do we allow God to be God instead of refashioning God into an image that fits our categories? It's this safe and predictable God. How do we know that we can surrender ourselves to God? How do we not become skeptical or, or not have trust or cynical? How do, how do I also know that really God has such dignity, holds such dignity for you and me, that he really does want to engage with us? He wants to seriously hear what we think. Like, how do I know that? We'll get Psalm 106 one more time with me. We can put up the final slide. They exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull which eats grass. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt. See, so much of at the root of what's happening at the base of Mount Sinai is that they were forgetting who had saved them. Right, this, is, oh, this is like the sin that we go back to again and again. This is the sin of Eden. We don't trust God. We don't trust that God has the, our best interest for us, that God is trustworthy. We forget what God has already done for us. Okay? We forget what Jesus has already done for us. How do we know that the God, as the God presents God's self, is trustworthy? And how do we know that that God cares about interacting with us? It's because of Jesus Christ. God has drawn near to us. God is not a distant God. God, through the person of Jesus Christ, has drawn near to us and has rescued us. This God is for us. Okay? That's why I can surrender this God. That's why I can say to this God, no, I want you to work on me rather than me work on you. Because I trust you. You've already shown you for me. You can do nothing more than you've already done to show me it for me. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, I trust you more than I trust myself. I know I can fashion a God that is comfortable and predictable, that God is totally uncompelling and that God doesn't have the power to transform me. I want a God who is big God, who has the power to transform me, and I want a God who's a personal God who draws near to me and actually wants to engage with me in conversation. Let's pray. God, thank you for what a compelling vision of who you are that comes through your word. Lord, we are in awe of you. We are in awe of your grandeur and your mighty we think about the universe and its vastness, we can't, we can't even begin to get our minds around how vast you are. And yet, Lord, you draw near to us. You converse with us. Not only do you converse with us, you want to hear what we have to say. You factor what we have to say in your decision-making. Lord, I pray that this people here at Midway will be a people of prayer, that we will go to bat for others. We will stand in the breach for those who need to stand in the breach. And Lord, that we will also just nurture our relationship with you in regular prayer. Thank you, God, for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.